I think there's some faith in the room today. That makes a big difference. You know that, right? It makes a big difference. The way you listen, Jesus said on more than one occasion, take heed how you hear. Take heed, not a word we use much anymore. It just simply means pay attention. And what's he saying? Pay attention to how you pay attention. Pay attention to how much attention you're giving. And he's talking about to his word. Pay attention to the way you pay attention. You and I both know that it's possible for the words that come out of your mouth to hit another person's eardrums without them really, really listening or getting what you're saying. We've all experienced that. You know what it's like. If you've had teenagers, you know what it's like. I pastored teenagers for six years, and I know what it's like sometimes to talk, and they're looking at you. It's like the lights are on, but you're wondering, is anybody home? That wasn't always that way, and not with all of them. But you know what it's like to talk, and, and it seems like the words are just kind of bouncing off their ears. When I first started to learn to play guitar, I suffered from what I call guitar face. And if you don't know what guitar face is, then you've never tried to talk to somebody while they play guitar. Because if they're playing while you're talking, they are not listening to you. And they just kind of give you that, that deep, empty stare. It also... Um, applies to husbands when they're watching television. I'm telling you, this invention that has come about in our lifetime, the ability to pause live TV, it's saving marriages all over the world. You know what it's like. Come on, ladies, help me out. You know what it's like. You've got something you want to say, and the game is on, and he's watching, and you come in the room, and his head turns towards you, but his eyes never leave the screen. And you're talking and he's going, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And you're like, what did I just say? <laughs> he says, uh-huh. What's wrong? TV face. He's not paying attention to how he's paying attention. <laughs> Jesus, say, Jesus said, pay attention to how you pay attention. And the way you and I attend unto the word, like we've already talked about today, if we'll put value on it, we'll get more out of it. Amen. Didn't Sarah do an awesome job last Sunday? That was tremendous. Uh, one of the first and only times I've ever been able to watch our own church live. I was out on the East Coast preaching in North Carolina. Of course, a couple of hours ahead there. So when we got done with church, you guys were just getting started. So I jumped on and I watched the whole thing and I just thought everybody did such an awesome job. What an anointed message. It was the right word and exactly what we needed to hear. And I actually want to continue on with what she started last week. I believe the Lord's wanting to continue to talk to us along those same lines. So open your Bibles with me again to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And we're going to keep, keep going in this series that we began several weeks ago. What's right with you? You need to find out what's right with you. Somebody say, there's something right with me. And there is, it's true. There's something right with you and it's right with you right now. And like we've already said, people live with this constant and acute awareness of everything that's wrong with them. If you were to ask somebody, hey, what's up? What's wrong? You okay? 
Most people could give you a laundry list of everything that's not right. Everything that's not right with them, either physically, pain in the body, pain in the soul, the heart, pain mentally, financially, relationally, things that are wrong in any and every area of life. But as believers, we need to, instead of magnifying the things that are wrong with us, we've got to find out what's right with us and begin to magnify what's right with us. Because if you'll find out what's right with you, it'll fix what's wrong with you. Magnifying what's wrong with you has never served to fix what's wrong with you. It can't do it. But when you find out what's right with you, it'll fix anything that's wrong with you. And here in 2 Corinthians 5 is where we find out there is something right with us. In verse 17, you've heard it before. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, what is he? A new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. You could say it like this. God was not holding your sin against you. If God was holding sin against us, man, we would be in a world of hurt. There'd be no hope for us if he was holding sin against us. But he's not. He's not holding sin against us. And David in the Old Testament, standing in the office of the prophet, looking forward to the day that you and I were living in, he said it like this, blessed is the man to whom God does not impute his sin. That person is blessed the one that God doesn't hold it against him. It's impossible to have a good relationship with somebody who won't let stuff go. It is impossible to build any kind of thriving fellowship and relationship with somebody if they are constantly bringing stuff up. If they're constantly bringing up your past and what you did and what you messed up in and everything you said wrong. And even if it happened Decades ago, they, they seemed to find a way to work it into the conversation. And it's impossible to have a real thriving relationship with somebody who won't let it go. Aren't you glad God is somebody who won't let it? Did I say that wrong? Aren't you glad God's not somebody who won't let it go? He let it go. He's not holding it against you. You got to understand the power of the blood of Jesus. And when we repent... It restores that relationship. He said, uh, God was in Christ, verse 19, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we're ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us on Christ. Uh, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Verse 21, here's what's right with you. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That is what's right with you. You are the righteousness of God in Christ. And that word righteous is just kind of an old English word. It just simply means right. You see it in other translations like this. New Living says it this way, God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right 
with God through Christ. And the Amplified Classic says, through him we might become the righteousness of God, what we ought to be, approved and acceptable and in right relationship with him by his goodness. How did we get back into this right relationship with him? Was it by your goodness? Was it by you doing something right? Well, think about how it all started. Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin. He had to be made sin. It wasn't because he sinned that he went to the cross. He had to be made that way. Well, you and I weren't called righteous because of all the righteous things we did. We had to be made, or I like to say it like this, remade. How did you become the righteousness of God? You were reborn that way. It's your new nature. It's your new DNA. You were reborn the righteousness of God in Christ. You were made right with him. You were approved. And he says, you have been restored to a right relationship with God. And the way we got that way was we were reborn that way. And this is why the last time I was with you, I led, led you in this confession, which to me is perhaps one of the strongest confessions of faith that anybody can make. One of the, a confession that I would say requires more faith than just about anything. So I want to lead you in it again. And I want you to say this after me if you believe it. Say this, I am, I am the, righteousness of God the righteousness of God in Christ. In now, why is it that confession requires so much faith? You want to know why? It's because you have eyes and you can see everything that's wrong with you. You know you so well and you can see every fault. You can see every flaw. You were there when you sinned, like right there. You were an eyewitness to what you did wrong. You were a firsthand witness to the sin, to the mistake, to the flaw, to the mess up. And maybe it was one of those things you had done a thousand times before. And you see all of that. That's why it requires so much faith for you to see all of that and still say, I am the righteousness of God in Christ. Because you can see that. That's what this whole chapter and even beginning in the chapter before this is all about. The Spirit of God speaking through Paul is helping us recognize the difference between things that are seen and things that are unseen. I want you to back up into chapter 4 and look towards the end of that chapter in verse 17. He said, we do not lose heart. You could say we don't give up. We don't quit even though our outward man. What is the outward man? That's the part you can see. Our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man. What's the inward man? Well, if the outward man is the part you can see, the inward man is the part you can't see. The inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen. We do not look at the things which are seen. We do not look at the things which are seen. Now, every time he says we, 
he is delineating between us and them. Who is us? Us is the born again child of God. Us is the new creation that he's getting ready to talk about. Us is the household of faith. Us, we, this is who we are. And there is a difference between us and them. There's a massive difference between those who know God and love God and those who don't know him, don't love him, don't want anything to do with him. As a matter of fact, that is the biggest difference that could possibly exist between two human beings. The biggest differences between us are not skin tone. The biggest differences between us are not where we're from, nationality, families we were born into or not born into. The biggest differences between us are not socioeconomic. They're not financial differences. And yet our enemy is working overtime right now in this world, trying to magnify all these differences and trying to get people to believe that these are the big differences well, you're this color and you're that shade. So that's a massive difference between you. You're this gender and you're that one. And you're, well, we're not quite sure. He's tried to magnify all these major differences. These are not the big differences. The biggest difference that could possibly exist between two human beings is one knows God and one doesn't. That's who he's talking about. We. We. And he said, we live different. We do not look at the things that are seen. Now, this is perhaps one of the biggest challenges to your life and walk of faith. Because what you can see can be so distracting. It can be in your face all the time. But we don't look at it. We don't look at what is seen. That's how I can stand here today and say, I am the righteousness of God in Christ. Even though I know what I did, I was there when I did it. And I was there when I did it again. And I did it again. And I did it again. And I know every fault and I know every flaw. I was there. I've seen it all, but I ain't looking at the things that are seen. I'm looking at what's unseen. And because of that, I am the righteousness of God in Christ. He goes on. He says, we don't look at the things that are seen, but at the things which are not seen. That's what we're looking at. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Now this flows right into chapter five where we began, but look at verse one. He's still talking about things you can see, things you can't see. He says, we know that if our earthly house, this tent, He's referring to this physical body that you and I live in. We know if this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. He's talking about the body you can see and the body you can't see. I can see, looking across this room right now, the tent that you're living in. I can see it. It's physical. It's material. I can see it. We do have another one, however. We have a house made by God. Now you don't see it yet, but he says in verse two, for in this, we groan earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. That's what the groaning's about. I, I laugh at myself now as I'm a little deeper into my forties, which I have thoroughly enjoyed. I'm 43 at this point. Um, 
It's the oldest I've ever been. <laughs> Never been this old before. And I'm enjoying it, doing everything I can to get healthier, stronger all the time. I do hear myself making sounds I never made before. Do I have any other honest men in here who know exactly what I'm talking about? I never made a sound when sitting down before. Now, just that simple act comes with all kinds of, I call them old man sounds. And we tend to groan, don't we? Just like he said, we groan as these bodies, these physical tents get older and older. Well, we groan. But here's what you and I need to understand as believers. We're not groaning because these things are getting older. He says it's a longing. It's a longing for that body that God made for us. So I'm going to go with that. That's what I'm going with. These aren't old man sounds. These are just, God, give me that new body. He said in verse three, if indeed having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. That's good news. For we, I'm thankful for clothes, y'all. I'm so grateful. Just cover all kinds of stuff. For we who are in this tent grown, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed. It's not that I want to die and get rid of this thing. I just want to be, he said, further clothed that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has also given us the spirit as a guarantee. All of this is talking about the difference between what you can see, what you can't see. So we are always confident, verse six, knowing that while we are at home in the body, in what you can see, we are absent from the Lord. While we're in this world where we see these things, we're not in that world where we see him. He's still unseen to us. So what's the answer to this? Verse seven, we walk by faith and not by what you can see. So that right there shows you that the walk of faith is learning to see what you can't see. Learning to look at things that are unseen. Now skip down to verse 13. For if we are beside ourselves, it's for God. If we're of sound mind, it's for you. I want you to notice this today. Verse 14, for the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus. If you're taking notes, making notes, I want you to draw your attention to this word judge. We judge thus. What do we judge? that if one died for all, then all died. He says, this is how we judge. Now this word judge just means to decide. And he said, what we've decided is that if one, talking about Jesus, died for all, then all died. But notice what he said before that. The love of Christ compels us. The love of Christ compels us. Why don't you say it? The love of Christ compels me. Now the King James uses a different word. It uses the word constrains or constraineth. The love of Christ constrains me. Here you see the love of Christ compels me. 
It's an interesting word, especially when you discover it gets translated those two different ways because they, they really sound like different things. To be compelled means to be urged on. It, it, to me, it means motivated to act, to do something. Constrained, though, has the idea of setting limitations where you don't act. It's the same word used in scriptures that talk about the huge crowds that gathered around Jesus, that thronged him in such a crowd that people couldn't even move. And at times there were those that were trampling each other, that just a thick crowd like that. I don't know if you've ever experienced it. Disney World, uh, Walmart, the day after Thanksgiving, the crowds, you can't move. It's, you, you are constrained. You, you want to go, you, you want to go down, down aisle six, but you can't because the crowd is constraining, limiting, stopping you. So you've got one word that talks about you being motivated to go, another word that talks about you not able to go, and yet it's the same thing. The love of Christ is doing both of those things. The love of Christ is motivating action and the love of Christ is limiting action. The love of Christ motivates thinking and speaking. The love of Christ limits thinking and speaking. That's why other translations don't use compel or constrain. They use the word control. The love of Christ controls me. And he said, in response to this, because I am compelled, constrained, controlled by the love of God, this is how I judge. This is the decision I've come to. Why? Because of love. The decision I've come to is that if he died for all, all died. Bear, bear with me. Stay, there. Stay with this. Verse 15 again, if he died for all, those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, or because of this love that compels, constrains, controls me, because I've decided that if Jesus died for all, all died. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we've known Christ according to the flesh, what's the flesh? That's the part you can see. What's he saying? Love won't let me look at you like that. Love won't let me, one translation says, evaluate you according to what I can see. Won't let me. Love says you can't go there, not in your thoughts not in your words, and not in your actions. It's constraining. It's, it's setting limitation. Because of love, I don't look at anyone according to the flesh. Even though we've known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, verse 17, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. I'm seeing something, church, as we dig into this that I've not been quick enough to see. Even after spending years and years, my whole life, looking at these things and growing up around these things. We've taken that, that confession that I just led you in a moment ago. I am the righteousness of God in Christ. And we talked about how much faith it takes. 
and how you have to make the decision. I'm not looking at what I can see. I'm not looking at my past. I'm not looking at my failures. I'm not looking at the mistakes I made a decade ago or 10 minutes ago. I'm looking at what I can't see. I am looking at what Jesus has done for me in the spirit. He's made me the righteousness of God in Christ. That's powerful. That's good. That's right. But when you take that one truth and you disconnect it from everything else he's talking about here, you miss out on really the heart of what he's saying. So I'm going to lead you in another confession. And this one, I think this one might require even more faith than the first one. And it's going to require you to look at the person sitting next to you. So go ahead and say this after me. You are the righteousness of God in Christ. Whoa. Whoa. Now, why does that one require as much, if not more faith than the first one? Same reason. Same reason. Because you can see every mistake, every flaw. You may have been there, depending on how close that person is to you. You may have been there when they made the mistake. You may have spent the last decade or two married to that person and got a front row view to the faults, the flaws, the missteps, the mistakes, the sins, the, the anger, the temper, the, huh? You may have seen any and all of it. But faith looks at them and says, you are the righteousness of God in Christ. There's such a weightiness to what I'm telling you right now. It'll save relationships. And that's what this whole passage is about. Relationship. Right? We've been restored to right relationship with God. But what did Paul say? We've been reconciled and then God turned around and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. It makes me laugh sometimes when I think about the huge gap that existed between God and man. Just an impossible gap to try to bridge and cross. It It was bigger than from one end of the universe to the other. That's how much space and distance there was between us and God. That's how much distance our sin put between us and him. And through Jesus and the ministry of reconciliation, he closed that gap. He bridged that gap forever. And it's funny to me, and it would be funny if it wasn't so sad, that if God can bridge a gap like that, What's this little thing between me and you? We're not a universe apart here. Come on. If he can bridge that, certainly we can fix this little thing, right? Certainly. After all, we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. We have that in us. 
the thing that he did to bridge the gap between us and him, that's been given to us and now we can do that with each other. What is this thing between me and you? What is this thing between y'all? What's, what's this thing between husband and wife that it can't be fixed in a moment of time by the same mercy and grace that brought us back to God and yet we stand back and go, no, 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 just too much, too much, too far apart. You want to fix that and in a hurry? Declare the same thing over them that you declare over you. They are the righteousness of God in Christ. Yeah, but I saw what they did. I'm not looking at what they did. I'm looking at what he did. I'm not looking at the things that are seen. I'm looking at what's unseen. This will change discussions. Even ones that get a little heated where the volume gets turned up a little bit and as it begins to escalate and man, you've been laying in bed at night just working on that comeback because you knew this argument was coming and you crafted it and you formed it and you thought, oh, you just say it again and let you, let you hear what's about to come out of me and I'm gonna put you in your place and here it comes, it's welling up on the inside of you but instead you look at them and say, you know what you are? You, I'll tell you what you are. You are the righteousness of God in Christ. I'm going to the other room. You can do that. You can do that. And it's faith, man. It's faith. We walk by faith and not by what we saw them do. We walk by faith. Faith for who they are in Christ. And we've heard so many good teachings and so many wonderful things about love and the love of God, but I know me and a lot, uh, like some of you, we've heard that and, and somewhere along the way, the way love got twisted and we, we turned love into maybe something that it's not and well, I got to do this because that's what love would do or I'll do it like that because that's what love would do and, and, and there's been a lot of confusion about it. This is love. This right here is love. The love of Christ compels and constrains it urges me to act and it limits my actions because I judge thus. If he died for all, then all died. What's he saying? If Jesus died as your substitute, heaven holds it that you died. Heaven records you went to the cross. That is how powerful the substitutionary sacrifice is. It's not that he just did it for you. He did it for you. I, I, I struggle to even put it into the right words. It's as though you paid the price. That's what Paul's saying. I judge you like this. You already died. That's why he said... You're a new creation. See, we've, we love claiming that, don't we? I'm a new creation in Christ. I am a new creation in Christ. Old things, dead, passed away. All things become new. Okay, well, that same truth and reality that you believe about you, what are you supposed to do with that? Apply that to them. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus. That old that old man that you were, dead and gone. 
even if he was just in the room five minutes ago. Because sometimes the old man shows up, doesn't he? You, I'll, I'll tell you what you are. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus. And leave it at that. That's love. That's love. Thank you, Lord. Say it again. The love of Christ compels me. Can I read something to you here that I wrote? I feel like the Lord gave this to me. I'm just going to read it the way he gave it to me. If I'm constrained by the love of Christ for you, then his love has set limitations and boundaries that will restrict my words and actions towards you. If I am constrained by the love of Christ, then the foundation of my view for you actually has nothing to do with you. It has to do with Jesus. The love of Christ limits my thinking to the fact that Christ died for you. And if Christ died for you, then heaven's records show that you died. Therefore, I can no longer regard you according to your flesh. The love of God restricts me from thinking of you that way. And it compels me to think of you as someone who is worthy of the blood of Jesus. We find this hard to do because of one reason. We have eyeballs. <laughs> we can see so clearly the mistakes that have been made and others' faults seem so glaringly obvious, making it difficult to see a person apart from their actions. But this chapter in 2 Corinthians has a solution for that. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Relationships require us to walk by faith and not by what we see. For your relationships with other people to thrive, you'll have to learn to look at other people, not through your natural eyes, but through the eyes of faith. You see yourself through the eyes of faith when you say, I am the righteousness of God in Christ. Now simply say the same thing about the other people in your life, particularly about those who you know are born again. My spouse is the righteousness of God in Christ. Even if you're dealing with someone who's still living in sin and hasn't accepted the gift of righteousness, still you can say, Jesus died for them. Now, whether they believe it or have put faith in it or not, still he died for them. I'll give you a few examples here. Jesus died for my supervisor. Jesus died for every one of my coworkers. Jesus died for my city officials. Jesus died for the president of the United States. Jesus died for every senator, every congressperson. Here's one. Jesus died for my mother-in-law. What are you doing when you're saying that? You're putting value on them. Think of someone you're at odds with right now. Someone who has hurt you with their words or their actions. Think of someone whose life seems to despise and belittle everything you hold dear and count valuable. Now say out loud, out loud, Jesus died and rose again. And then put their name in there for them. Just as he did for me. Now listen, Jesus put value on their life when he shed his blood and paid to ransom them from sin. Who am I? to despise what he values? Who am I to call worthless what he calls priceless? 
the love of Christ won't let me judge any other way. What does judge mean? Decide. Decide. We know that in our, in our judicial system. The judges that we have in place, whether they're local, county, state, all the way up to the Supreme Court, their job is to pass down decisions. Decisions. But now in that, in that particular setting and situation, it is a qualified decision. Qualified by their knowledge of the law. Qualified by their experience. Here's a big one. Qualified by their knowledge of the facts. Hmm. That's what the decision about another person comes out of. But I want you to see this as we begin to wrap it up. In Matthew chapter 7, go there with me and look at something Jesus said. Who am I to belittle what he values? Who am I to call worthless what he calls priceless? We're going to read something here in Matthew chapter 7. But you got to understand that Matthew chapter 7 flows right out of Matthew chapter 6. And in Matthew chapter 6 is where you and I hear the words of Jesus and he says it over and over again. Do not worry about your life. He said, don't worry about your clothes, what you put on. Don't worry about the food that you're going to eat. He's saying, don't worry about your finances. Don't worry about your provision. And he said it a number of times, do not worry. But what's interesting about that statement that Jesus made, do not, you see it quite a lot through the gospels. When you look it up, you find out that it's actually some of the strongest, most prohibitive language that he could have used. And other translations will translate it differently. And perhaps the way it should have been translated, they actually translate it like this. Stop it. Not do not worry. What did he say? Stop worrying. Stop it. How could Jesus look at a crowd of people, a bunch of nameless faces, and tell all of them to stop worrying? How could he do that? Surely there's some in the crowd that aren't, right? It's the nature of the flesh. And that's what he was dealing with. It is the nature of the flesh to worry. And people say, well, it's only natural that I worry. And to that I say, you're exactly right. It is only natural. And that is exactly why Jesus said, stop it. Stop it, stop it, stop it. Stop what? Stop worrying about your life. And a lot of people, particularly people who have gotten a hold of some things regarding the grace of God, if you're not careful how you hear it, if you don't pay attention to how you pay attention, you hear this said a lot. Well, I, I just don't like religion and all the do's and the don'ts. Christianity's not a bunch of do's and don'ts. Have you ever heard anybody say that before? Christianity's not a bunch of do's and don'ts. I'm not into all the do's and don'ts. Okay, I know what you're saying, but be honest and read the Bible and read Jesus and what he said. He gave you some do's and he gave you some don'ts. And one of the big don'ts here is do not stop worrying. That's one of the don'ts. Stop worrying about your life. The reason I said that to you is because you get to chapter seven, verse one, and you see the exact same thing when he says, judge not. 
that you be not judged. Do not judge could have and maybe should have been translated how? Help me out, church. Stop it. Stop it. You see this in the Weiss translation. He says, stop pronouncing censorious criticism in order that you may not be the object of censorious criticism. Censorious, what's that mean? To be severely critical of others. And he didn't just say, don't judge. What did he say? Stop judging. How could Jesus look at a big crowd of people? This is not a one-on-one counseling session. This is not Jesus' marriage counseling across the desk with somebody. He is talking to a massive crowd of people and he says to every single one of them, stop worrying. And what else? Stop judging. And just as I'm sure there were people in the crowd that say, you know, I don't really have a worry problem. It's the nature of the flesh. And if you don't consciously and purposefully and by faith stop worrying, you will worry. Same thing goes with judging. He said, stop judging. What should that tell you? It's happening. It's happening everywhere and all the time. Criticizing. I know my grandfather tells a story. I heard him tell this years ago. He, I think this happened in the 80s in a time of prayer and fellowship with the Lord. He said to him, what is the biggest problem in the body of Christ? This is my grandfather asking the Lord this. What is the biggest problem in the body of Christ? And I think it surprised him, but he got an answer right away. And he said he heard the Lord speak up on the inside of him and he said, it is your dogged determination to correct one another. Constantly criticizing, correcting, judging. Jesus is so serious about this that he looks at the crowd and says, stop judging. But do you know how many people today, if you were to say, hey, that was judgmental, they'd say, oh, no, no, I wasn't judging. Nobody acknowledges when they're judging. And if everybody who is not judging really isn't judging, then there's really no reason for Jesus to say this. But what's he saying? Everybody's doing it. Everybody's doing it. Doing what? Judging, criticizing, finding fault. He says, don't judge. Stop judging that you be not judged. What's he telling us? That criticizing other people opens wide the door to you being criticized, to you being judged. For with What judgment you judge, you will be judged. Now, there's a lot of people that would tell you right now, well, all God's judgment went on Jesus at the cross. So I don't have any risk of any more judgment. What did he just say? Well, that was before the cross. Well, then Jesus should have said, judge not, so you're not judged. But really, you know, in a few minutes here, I'm going to the cross, so that's not really going to apply anymore, so don't worry about it. That's not what he said. He's telling you how you judge other people is how you get judged. With what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye and don't even think about the plank in your own eye? 
How can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye? And look, there's a plank in your eye. Jesus calls you a hypocrite. And if there's any group of people Jesus was not a fan of, it was the hypocrites. And the word hypocrite is a Greek word that just translates to actor. This is what it means, actor. That's what they called their actors, hypocrites. And this year's Academy Award for best male hypocrite, that's what they referred to them as. And that's what Jesus was saying. And even other translations say that. He would say, you actors on the stage of life pretending to be something you're not. And he was not a fan of this. Judging, passing down a decision against somebody and criticizing them based only on what you see requires you to be a hypocrite, an actor. And nobody in here is qualified to judge. You're not qualified. I'm not qualified. You don't know the law that good. I don't know the law that good. Let me tell you what else doesn't qualify you. What else keeps you from being qualified to judge? You never have all the facts. And Jesus said, why are you looking at your brother going, you, 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 got, you got something in your eye, a speck. What's he say? You got a problem. I can fix what's wrong with you. He said, meanwhile, you have got a log attached to the side of your face. And you trying to help other people with what's wrong with them? What did he call that? Hypocrisy. He said, stop the judging. Stop it. Well, I wasn't judging. There's a good chance if you begin a statement like this, you say, I'm not trying to judge, but guess what you're about to do? Judge. Offer up your criticism. Well, I'm just telling you how I see it. How you what? I'm just telling you how I see it. Yeah, how you what? See it? Oh, we don't look at the things that are seen. We don't look at the things that are unseen or with the things that are seen. We look at the things that are unseen because the things that are seen are temporary. Things that are unseen are eternal. You want to know what's eternal? You are the righteousness of God in Christ. Amen. So we got to stop the judging. We have to stop it in our lives. There's no room for it. How do we stop it? We let love compel, constrain, control us. We look through a different lens. We look through the lens of love. Who am I to call worthless what he paid such a high price for? Who am I to despise what he values so highly? What am I saying? Who am I to judge? And what did Paul say? Thus we judge. Here's the decision. Yeah, I saw what you did. I felt what you did. What you did, what you said hurt me. Yeah, all that. Here's my decision. Jesus died. 
He died for you. And that means in God's eyes, you died. And that old man is dead and gone. All things are become new. So here's my judgment. You are the righteousness of God in Christ. See how much faith that takes? And if you got to close these eyes, it might help. It might help. But that's okay, because we don't look at the things that are seen. Looking at things that are unseen. Would you ask the Lord to help you with this? Because I'm asking him. I have experienced this. Years ago, when Sarah and I and our staff, we were in Texas, we had a staff meeting one day. And one thing led to another in our conversation. And for probably an hour, we talked about a church that we had been around, kind of been exposed to. And we sat there and talked this way. I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do it like that. Now, this is years ago. We didn't even have a church. And yet we're sitting there criticizing a church. And if you would have said, if somebody would have walked in the room and said, y'all need to quit judging, guess what I would have said? Oh, we're not judging. I'm just telling you what I see. Then guess what you're doing? Judging. And man, my heart bothered me about it, but I didn't do anything about it. That night, all hell broke loose in our house. Sarah and I were fussing with each other, and it was one of those fights. It was like, what are we even fighting about? I don't know. I just went into uh, our master bath, and I just started using my trimmer and was shaving. I, I cut myself on my face. Not a big deal. It happens, right? That thing turned into a massive infection. My, my, the whole bottom part of my face swelled up. It was like a golf ball inside my mouth. I couldn't go in public. And it got so painful that in the middle of the night, two o'clock in the morning, I got myself in the car and drove to the emergency room where they had to cut it open. It's like, well, why are you telling us that? You can believe this or not. I don't care. The Lord helped me connect the dots. He did not do this. He did not stir up strife in our house. He didn't cut my face. He didn't give me an infection. But our judgment opened the door to judgment. Now you do with that what you want to do. I know a lot of people don't believe that. That's fine. It was my face. I know what happened. I was there. To judge somebody else is to essentially say, I don't want mercy. I don't need mercy. And who among us would actually say that? I'm not bold enough to say that. I love me some mercy. I want mercy flowing my way all day, every day. I need mercy. 
If I'm going to constantly and consistently be the righteousness of God in Christ, then it's going to be mercy, 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 washing over me nonstop, nonstop, cleansing of all unrighteousness, the blood that constantly cleanses of everything that is wrong. And the only thing that can stop mercy flowing to me is when I stop mercy flowing through me. And if I judge and I criticize and I pass down my decision based on what I see in somebody else and I decide they got what was coming to them, they don't deserve that or they do deserve this, and I start passing these decisions down, it's like me saying, God, I don't want any more mercy. I don't need any more mercy. And I ain't about to tell him no more mercy. Anybody else love mercy? Show some mercy. Amen. Amen. Let's stand up. Thank you, Lord. This excites me. I, I feel like these are, these are answers. These are fixes to problems in, in relationships and families. If we can learn to see each other and declare with the same faith over them what we declare over ourselves. I'm the righteousness of God in Christ. Well, then who are you to turn around and judge them? They are too. They are too. Let's lift up our hands and close our eyes. Sarah, come if there's anything you've got to add to this. Father, we thank you today for your word. And we declare again boldly that we are the righteousness of God in Christ because of what Jesus has done for us. We are new creations in Christ Jesus. But I'm asking you, Holy Spirit, to help us see through the lens of love. The love of Christ compels, constrains, controls us. I will not judge. Can you make that declaration out loud with me? I will not judge. Say it like this. The judging stops today. I'm not the judge. Say it. I'm not the judge. I'm not the judge. Thank you, Lord. Say it like this. My decision, My decision is that they, now whoever they is, only you know that. You've got that right now in your heart, your mind. You know who they are. You know who it is. So about they, about them, say this. My decision, My, decision. My, judgment, My judgment is this. Is this. They, they are the righteousness of God, righteousness of God. in Christ. Now listen, what did Jesus say? However you judge others is how you'll be judged. So if you are constantly judging others as the righteousness of God in Christ, you are constantly being judged as the righteousness of God in Christ. That's God's de decision about you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you so much for tuning in today. We hope you enjoyed this message. If you need someone to pray with you, there are several ways for you to contact us. Feel free to give us a call at 817-577-0180. You can also contact us through the Legacy Studios app or either of our websites. Giving options are available online at pearsonsministries.com and legacychurch.family. If you prefer, you can also text an offering. Simply text LEGACY in any dollar amount to the number 28950 and follow the prompts. 
Be blessed today. We love you. And remember, you are always welcome here in the house of faith.